If I were to ask you, what's the most important routine of your life, what would you say? Most people respond with answers about fitness or exercise. Some talk about diet, some talk about their kids. I'm here to tell you that the most important routine of your life is your sleep. My name is Kayla and this is Lay with Kay. I created this podcast for my nap needers, my sleepy heads, my dreamers, my yogis. And my goal is to change how you choose to see your rest and to get you to sleep better. So, bed peace is guaranteed. Sweet dreams. Hello, sleepyheads. In today's episode, I'm going to talk about five facts you should know about sleep, and it's the perfect time to mention Earthproof Elixirs. Earthproof Elixirs is handcrafted by a yoga teacher and a doula who have products ranging from African black soap to infused eucalyptus bath oil. Right now, I'm using the third eye bedtime roll. It's infused with valerian root and has an actual amethyst crystal in the bottle. Vicky girl, I don't know how you do that, but there's an actual crystal in each of these products. It's the perfect addition to my sleep routine. Not only do the blends smell perfect, but you can feel good about what you're putting on your body as it's free of parabens, harsh fragrance, and preservatives. You can find Earthproof Elixirs on Instagram and support the brand that aims to heal the mind, body, and spirit. Hello. It is I, Kayla, your sleep fairy, delivering you sleep information you didn't ask for. Welcome. (laughs) Hello. Um, It's been a while. The last episode I recorded was on June 22nd, and it's almost a month after, and I've been going back and forth on just trying to remain positive and trying to find grace and understanding for myself uh, in the time that it took me to get here to record a fourth episode. Um, there is a lot to say, but as far as just why it took so long, it has everything to do with just the current state of where we are in the world. Uh, On the heels of George Floyd, we added a number of names to this movement. Uh, Oluwatoyin in Tallahassee. We had Tony McDade also in Tallahassee. We had Vanessa Gwillen, um, Breonna Taylor, of course. We have Raya Milton. We have Dominique Remy-Fells, Rayshard Brooks. So many names just within a month, really, of the upheaval. So in signing the petitions and attending the protests and donating money and trying to learn as much as I can in attending panels to defund the police and listening in on the conversations on how we can do better, it's been exhausting. It's been it's been exhausting emotionally, physically, uh, and just not knowing where the podcast about sleep is going to fit into this conversation. And I talked with my therapist and she mentioned to me 
that since this work to end discrimination, to fight towards an end to racism, police brutality, since this is something that I'm so passionate about, I need to find a way to connect. So to connect the two and understanding and being able to educate and share with you guys. So immediately it made me think about how exhausted I was with the little that I was doing. Um, And I know that others feel that too, whether you're actually out on the streets protesting or even if you are just trying to educate yourself as much as possible on your own privilege, your own biases, um, all of these things are mentally taxing and we can't undermine that in any way, shape or form. So I wanted to bridge how we can talk about sleep and just work no matter what that work might be and bring the two together to make it make sense and to use the knowledge that we have from neuroscience to make better choices. So on Instagram, I talked about um, the five facts of sleep, but I started specifically with a story about Erica Garner. And I wanted to mention Erica Garner because I think that she is a not only a name that needs to be remembered for years to come because in her own right, she was most certainly a heroine, a pillar of her community, and someone who had to stand tall when what she should have been doing is just grieving the loss of her father. Erica Garner was the daughter of Eric Garner, who was illegally killed by New York City Police Department, uh, New York Police Department. I don't know the boroughs, uh, Long Island, whatever. I'm sorry, New York people who listen to the podcast. He was killed by an illegal chokehold. The last of Eric Garner's words were, I can't breathe. And Erica Garner, that happened in 2014. So Erica Garner, like me, born in 1990, was 24 at the time. She already had two children, um, and she was thrusted into this fight. And you can only imagine, again, those of us who have just started to really uh, break ground with this work, Erica Garner had to do it on the heels of her father's death. And the death of her father that was not only senseless, violent, but also on a global stage. Everyone saw that. Everyone remembers those images. So it's important to mention her and her name to talk about the work that she was doing. So Erica thrusted herself into activism. Um, Right after her father's death, she was on the streets, vocal, speaking with reporters, speaking with anyone who would listen to her story. And again, this should be a moment for her to grieve and to process, but she had to ensure that her father's name was not forgotten, nor did he join the names of others who were other black men who were senselessly killed by the New York Police Department. So a month after his death and for the following year, Garner led twice weekly marches visiting the scene of her dad's death and visits which the media labeled a die-in, but they would lie down on the streets. And I'm sure you might remember those images. It's very moving. She marched in Black Lives Matter demonstrations and other protest events and set up a foundation in her father's name. 
And the aim of the Garner Way Foundation is to engage communities all over the world in social justice issues through political awareness, music, arts, and activism. In addition, Garner campaigned to have the transcripts of the grand jury into her father's death made public. And she continued to be an outright critic and uh, spokesperson for police reform and just identifying police misconduct. So right now with this fight for defunding the police, I think it's one of those that ties beautifully together. In knowing that we have to stand up, be courageous, be brave enough to do the work because there are those who have died for this fight. So Garner had two children, and shortly after the birth of her son, she suffered a heart attack. And what are some of the biological bases or the underpinnings of heart attacks? It can be exacerbated exacerbated by um, an uptick in cortisol, so the stress hormone. And you can, again, imagine she's trying to grieve the loss of her father on top of all of the other obligations she has in her life. You can't imagine what that must be like. And again, it's, it is stressful. Um, And her heart was enlarged according to what I was found, what I found on Wikipedia. And then on December 23rd, she was 27 at the time she suffered a second heart attack uh, where she fell into a coma. And she was left with major brain damage, and it led to her death on December 30th, 2017. Again, she was 27. And the heart attack was said to be induced by an asthma attack. You can understand the gravity of being grief-stricken at the tragic loss of a parent and having to bear the burden of ensuring that his name isn't lost amongst others who weren't given justice and to protect other families from the horror. And to experience some of the same type of feelings that her dad might have felt in not being able to breathe is heartbreaking. But again, she was 27. She was thrusted into this fight at 24. And for three long years, she fought this fight. And I'm saying long, even though it's a relatively short period of time, I'm saying long because I, I can't imagine having to deal with the gravity of it. But it's a cautionary tale for those of us who are here because we need to understand how important our rest is, how important it is for us to give ourselves the space to be. And letting Erica's story be an example to you. So yes, you do have to put forth the work. You do have to fight the good fight. But knowing that In order to be the most beneficial to the fight, you have to be well calibrated. You have to reset. You have to decompress. Sometimes you have to pull yourself away. And again, it's in order for you to show up to be the best version of yourself. Our bodies are not machines. And we are not designed to run all day. There's a reason why we get tired. There's a reason why our body shuts down when we don't rest. It's because it's pertinent. It's because it's necessary. So trying not to uh, undermine that fact and seeing value in your rest, whatever that might be. 
For some people, resting is meditation. For some, it might be listening to music. For some, it just might be resting your eyes for 10 minutes. Know that you have to refill your cup. You always have to. When the energy sources are depleted, you have to refill, you have to reset. And again, knowing that in order to be beneficial and helpful, you have to give yourself space to rest. So I want to briefly run over uh, five facts that everyone should know about sleep. And the very first fact is that humans are genetically inclined to sleep in two phases. And though that two-phase sleep is called biphasic sleep. Um, so you have a short nap in the afternoon um, that can range from 30 to 30 minutes to an hour. And then you have your longer sleep at night, which is that typical eight to nine hours. So again, we are genetically inclined to sleep in two phases. And I talk about this study all the time. Um, so in a study examining uh, the abandonment of siesta, Harvard studied 23,000 men and women from ages 20 to 83, focusing on cardiovascular outcomes. None of these uh, people had a history of coronary heart disease, but those who abandoned siesta practices went on to suffer a 37% increased risk of death from heart disease over six years in comparison to those who maintained regular daytime naps. I mentioned to you before that you have to refill your cup. So when energy sources are depleted, you definitely have to set yourself up for success by resetting, recalibrating. And <laughs> I mentioned that our bodies are not machines. And I also just think about how many references do we have where if your computer dies, if your phone dies, you have to recharge it. And sometimes you have to recharge it without touching it, right? So I know for my phone, I'm my phone is always dying. Um, it's always in the red zone. And there's moments where I have to just leave it alone for a few hours. I don't touch it. And it's reset. It's ready to go. It's full again. Why can't we do the same thing when it comes to ourselves? Just like with our cars, we they can't function and run uh, if we don't get oil changes, if we don't change the coolant, if we don't change the filters. And you go hundreds of miles, there's only so much gas that you're going to get at that mileage, right? So you have to refill the tank. It's the same thing with your body, but we have been uh, ingrained to reject rest and to embrace grind culture, but we were not designed to grind. Bars, I didn't even mean to make that rhyme, kid, but it's there. I don't know, man. I need to like trademark these shits because this shit is, you know, effortless, kid. Anyway, yeah, we're not designed to grind. We are not. Um, and we have the example from this study from Harvard was in Greece. But we also have our Namibian um, tribes that still practice the way our ancestors did. So they don't have the influence of technology and, elect and electricity, but they do work for a certain amount of time in the morning. And then they take a rest 
they nap for an hour, um, and then they get back to more work, and then they go to sleep at night, and then it start, starts all over again. So when we go against our natural rhythm, our lives are literally shortened. Again, you're not a machine. Your body is not designed to run on eight or 12 hours of straight work. In those areas from this Harvard study uh, where siestas remained intact, men were four times more likely to reach the age of 90. And I mentioned this uh, on my Instagram page, but athletes who have nine hours of sleep are less likely to injure themselves. Why? Because there is a repair mechanism happening during your sleep. So not only are the tissues being repaired, but there's growth hormone being released and also just refining the muscle memory as it relates to athletes. So not only do we perform better when we have more sleep, but we can also live longer. That's important. And again, so the goal of the podcast is to get you to change the way you see your rest and value your sleep. All right, fact number two. Fact number two, a rare collection of humans are able to survive on six hours of sleep with minimal impairment. It appears to be a subvariant of a gene called DEC2. D is in dog, E is in elephant, C is in cat, two, dos. Chronic sleep deprivation is a public health issue. Sleep deprivation and drunk driving are correlated. Why? (laughs) Um, So just to rewind, okay. So a lot of people think, and I was also one of those lots of people who thought that I could function on six hours of sleep. We don't realize um, or even attribute some of our lapses in being able to recall information. We don't attribute our tiredness, our mood, our energy, we never really attribute it to rest, right? We either say, you know, it's the weather or something we ate or someone else or whatever. It can be anything. But we very rarely attribute it to sleep. And I know for myself, I definitely didn't do that. I would get six hours of sleep and I would prance around and think, yeah, I can get six hours of sleep. I don't even need all that. But I know now at 29 that I have lapses in my memory. I know that my ability to recall is not as sharp as it was 10 years ago. Of course, age is a factor, and the fact that I'm not in school steadily learning information is a lot more different. But there can certainly be a correlation between that and the fact that I am not getting an adequate amount of sleep at night. So... When we talk about um, that gene, very, very rare gene of people who can function um, optimally with six hours of sleep consistently. Most people think they have it. Sis, you ain't got it. Bro, you ain't got it. They, them, you ain't got it. And there are a few sleep researchers. If you swear that you can just function all the time on six hours of sleep, there are some researchers all over the world who will challenge that idea. They will hook you up to an EEG, test you, and see. 
And the tests that they use really are tied to uh, recall information. So they're task-based, just depending. They'll give you a certain amount of words or phrases or names to remember. And they examine um, whether or not people who have less sleep, disrupted sleep. So say if it's six hours and you wake up in the middle of the night, they look at uh, the patterns between disrupted sleep and people who are able to get adequate to sleep. And there are stark differences, which is why we can tie it to drunk drunkenness, intoxication, um, because some of it is similar, right? So when you're drunk, you know how they have you recite your alphabet and blah, blah, blah. And most people don't really do very well because something is shifting in the chemistry of the brain. And the same is happening uh, when you are sleep deprived. But what makes it dangerous, especially um, as it relates to driving, is that we fall into micro sleeps, right? So when you're exhausted and you fall asleep at the wheel, you have this micro sleep. And that's what uh, neuroscience researchers refer to as those short little, uh, you know, instances where you fall asleep and then you all of a sudden wake up. But think about how dangerous that can be if you're on the road and you fall the fuck asleep and you're totally unconscious versus you're drunk, you might be swerving. Yes, it's dangerous. But the two really are very, very detrimental. Um, And we really have to be careful uh, when it comes to how we rest and exhaustion in our relationship with it. So chronic sleep restriction over months or years allows you to acclimate to impaired performance, lower alertness, and reduced energy levels. And I mentioned before um, that oftentimes we very rarely attribute a lack of sleep or, or sleep deprivation to some of the things that we see in our lives. So like I just mentioned, we start to get accustomed to Uh, you know, not being able to perform as well or not being as energetic or uh, having a reduction in just our ability to pay attention. Um, We accept the norm of compromising vitality and mental aptitude. Again, going back to just my own struggles with recalling information. And then it's a slow accumulation of ill health. So, What's interesting, too, is that you have these cells called telomeres, and they naturally shorten over time as you age. But when you are chronically sleep-deprived and you compound that with um, an unhealthy diet and you compound that with um, stress, high stress levels, and when you are stressed out, you don't tend to eat very healthily, right? So thinking about that, those cells, they, they, the, the shortening of those cells increases at a way faster rate. So once those cells start to shorten, there's a relationship between the telomere length and Alzheimer's disease. So again, having these memory deficits later on in life is uh, attributed, you know, to sleep deprivation compounded with a number of other things. But Again, just that within itself, considering all of the factors, considering uh, what work might be doing for you mentally, physically, emotionally, how are you feeling at this current moment about your work, about your career? 
Are you tired? Um, have you normalized being tired? Have you normalized being exhausted? Are you giving more energy to work or other obligations than yourself? And understanding what the ties are as it relates to what's happening in your body. And to be honest, the cost is way too great for us to compromise work and other obligations for sleep and years of our lives and protecting against neurodegenerative diseases. We get a choice. We get to choose. And awareness really is so, so empowering. All right. Fact number three. Melatonin helps the brain and body understand the time for sleep. It is not the hormone for generating sleep. (laughs) All right. I have been a victim of taking melatonin as a sleep aid and thinking that it was going to do something. But Kayla has a degree in neuroscience. And once I learned, honey, awareness is everything. Yeah. Once you know better, it's the hope that you do better, right? So, um, yeah, melatonin helps the brain and body understand the time for sleep. It is not the hormone for generating sleep. Melatonin does not make you tired. Why? Um, It is the hormone that tells your brain, hey, hey, it's starting to get dark. It's time for us to start to shift into our rest routine, shift into our bedroom routine. That's what that's that's all melatonin does. It is literally just that time marker where it's like, "Hey, hey, it's getting dark, you know, you should start winding down." But there are other chemicals at play um, that help you feel drowsy. So, where is melatonin useful? It's useful for people who are traveling across time zones. So if you're traveling east to west, you would want to take melatonin. Why? Because it gets maybe it gets darker at a later time than what you're accustomed to on the west coast if you're from the east coast. So what melatonin will do for you if you're taking it um, is that it will just increase that time. So maybe you take it around 6, right? You maybe go to bed on the East Coast. Say if you're in New York, you normally go to bed around 10. You take it around 6 in California, 6 p.m. in California, and then you kind of shift into your normal sleep routine, right? Uh, Yeah. (laughs) So, Understanding that I think is really empowering because a lot of times what happens is that we are so accustomed to, um, you know, just what we see on the gram and all of these things. Um, But really, it's important for us to not fall into the trap and to not be wasteful because I just have melatonin just sitting here, honey, Um, just just not being used. Uh, so yeah, it's important for us to know about that. Um, moving on fact number four, caffeine has an average half-life of five to seven hours, meaning it takes five to seven hours for half of the caffeine to be removed from the body. I just had a conversation with one of my friends who told me he had four espresso shots, espresso shots. And I'm like, what? No wonder you can't sleep. 
Because if you're taking an espresso shot and you might have chocolate cake and then you might have a soda or you might have a caffeinated tea, you are just sending your body into a frenzy. So we talked about hormones with melatonin. So melatonin is the one that's saying, hey, it's time for, you know, it's getting dark outside. Let's start to shift into resting, right? But you have adenosine that's also uh, playing a role in your sleep. So what happens is that when you take caffeine, uh, the receptors for adenosine are blocked. So caffeine is blocking the receptors for the hormone that makes you drowsy. And all the while, that hormone is steadily increasing. It ain't ain't shit happening. It ain't, you know, oozing out of your fingertips. It's still increasing, right? So you keep taking your caffeine, you take your caffeine, you pull an all-nighter, and then that adenosine is steadily rising. Once that caffeine has cleared, out of your body, then you crash, right? Adenosine is just like, hits you all at once and it's a lot of it. And I think another thing that's important to mention is that you cannot make up for sleep. Once it's lost, it's lost. That whole day or two days or three days that you spent up um, to the wee hours of the night, you don't make up for that lost sleep. It's gone, it's gone. Um, But you have accumulated this hormone where you sleep maybe for a whole entire day and you think you're making up for it, but really the damage is done. So when you think about caffeine, it's important for us to consider that because some of us might have a little bit more sensitivity to caffeine. And not only does it have some um, effects of dehydrating the body, but just the, the huge factor that it plays in our sleep. So taking that into consideration, being really mindful of when you choose to have your morning cup of coffee or that soda or just saying no to caffeinated beverages, especially after 12, just say no. Try something else. We probably should all be drinking more water, myself included. Drink that water. All right. And... Whew, last fact is fact number five. Naps in midday rest in addition to adequate sleep at night are seen to be correlated with protecting against Alzheimer's, cancer, and cardiovascular disease. Surveys have examined that old people's fear um, is more uh, prominent for Alzheimer's than it is for cancer. At least um, with cancer, you keep the remnants of who you are versus Alzheimer's where you lose that completely. So it makes sense why the elderly would fear um, this neurodegenerative, very debilitating disease over cancer. Um, I talked a little bit before about um, chromosomes as it relates to Alzheimer's and I talked about diet. So We might have an increase in levels of cortisol um, over time, which uh, just exacerbates other health issues. But when we put that into a, a, um, a diet that's high in fat or high in cholesterol, 
then we can create issues for ourselves later on. So a lot of times with age-related dementia, memory memory deficits, a lot of times what's happening is that there's a lack of blood flow to the hippocampus, so the area that's responsible for consolidating, consolidating your memories in the brain. This area is not getting the amount of blood flow that it needs. So it leads to these deficits in cognition, in memory, and being able to recall. Um, and of course, over time, that can lead to something that mimics Alzheimer's disease. Um, and I already talked about the neuroprotective benefits for telomeres. So with all things considered, all right, Kayla, you just dropped all this knowledge. So what the hell am I supposed to do? Sis, bro, they, them. I got you. All right. Um, it's important for all of us to have a sleep routine. Sleep routine, um, as you're starting to shift into your rest. So what does that mean? Having a set time for you to go to bed and a set time for you to wake up is important. Um, not only will you, uh, you need to establish a routine. Sleep is the most important routine of your life. So you have to treat it as such. Um, it's We usually have alarm clocks set for the time that we need to wake up, but we very rarely have alarms set for when we should be sleeping. So being able to establish your own sleep routine, your time for you to get into bed and to start resting versus um, just only when you wake up and being really intentional with that time that you set to go to sleep. So during that time, I think it's important for all of us to if you're going to be on your phone, you want to decrease the brightness. I know for all for a. Uh, iPhones, there is a feature, I'm looking for it now, there's a feature called Night Shift, and I have mine set to set from 10 o'clock to 7 a.m. So that Night Shift feature automatically shifts the colors of your display to the warmer end of the color spectrum after dark, and it may help you get a better night's rest. So if we're doing this for our phones, then we need to do it for our laptops. We need to do it for our televisions, especially if they're in the bedroom, decreasing the brightness. So just like I mentioned, that hormone melatonin tells your brain, hey, it's getting dark. But light denotes the brain to wake up. It denotes wakefulness. It denotes alertness, right? So um that's why if you wake up at night and you turn on the light to go to the bathroom, maybe once you get back in bed, it might be really hard for you to sleep because you just kind of sent a shock to your eyes and your brain like, hey, is, there's this bright light. So maybe it's morning time. Maybe it's time for me to be awake. Um, so taking that into consideration, decreasing the brightness for all of your devices or maybe even just not even using them for your night shift, right? So choosing to put them away um, and maybe you read, maybe you start to meditate, maybe you listen to my podcast. 
Um, yeah, maybe just establishing your routine. Maybe it's um, a soothing self-massage. So I mentioned um, Earthproof Elixirs, investing into the lavender, investing into the body oils, the massage oils, everything to make yourself feel good, to really wind down and to get serious about your sleep routine is important. Um, another thing, since we're talk, since I'm talking about light, I want to mention the, the yellow light in your room. A lot of times we have these bright white lights, and I think they're called, ooh, halogen, these LED really bright-ass bulbs that we have in our room. I am going to ask you to change them. I'm going to ask you to change them to soft yellow light. Um, and again, because if we're doing it for our phones, then we need to do it for every light source in our bedroom. Your bedroom is for sleeping. So changing the bulbs in your room to a softer yellow light so it's not so harsh on your eyes. Um, and that will also encourage you to take your damn work out of your bedroom and into an office or wherever the space in your house, apartment, tent, RV, wherever that shit belongs. You take your work out of your bedroom. Get out of that. If it's not bright enough in your bedroom for you to quote unquote work, you shouldn't be working there in the first place. Boom, bam, that's it. Um, yeah, so that's just huh, something that we can do very easy right at this very moment. And I can talk to you about, um, you know, buying sheets and better comforters and just setting up your space to be perfect. But that is for another podcast, honey. Um, I will save that for another episode. Maybe when I start to get sponsors, that's the goal. I am putting it out there in the universe. One of these mattress companies, sheet companies, please sponsor me. Please, 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 please. Sponsor sis, sponsor me, your sleep fairy. Anyway, all right. So done with that. You have learned about your sleep facts. You have learned about Erica Garner. Please continue to say her name. And you have a little bit of tips to start to work on your routine and get more serious. Okay, so now comes the bedtime story. If you haven't already, start to get into bed. Find something comfortable to seat. Comfortable to sit, comfortable to sit, find somewhere comfortable to sit, to lie down, and we will get into tonight's bedtime story. So if you haven't already, making your way to that place in your space where you feel most comfortable the most at ease, the most secure. And taking a deep breath in through your nose, filling up the belly, and the exhale to roll your shoulders. Deep breath in through your nose, filling up the lungs. And the exhale again to roll your shoulders, letting the shoulder blades rest downwards. Bringing maybe awareness to 
unhinging the jaw, softening the brows, relaxing the ribcage, allowing your fingertips to lengthen down towards your toes. And just letting the entire body go soft. Knowing that you are okay exactly where you are. Whatever it was that you weren't able to accomplish today, that's okay. Just allowing yourself to be in this space, in this moment. Taking a deep breath in through your nose, fill up the belly. And exhale to release. And the release is not just a physical action, but maybe with every breath you're releasing the agenda. Maybe with every breath you're releasing your task list, your obligation, your worry. Again, whatever it is that you set out to do today and you weren't able to accomplish it, just giving yourself the grace and the space to develop understanding. Allow it another, the remainder of the week or maybe another week, but knowing that you have time, knowing that you have space and we owe it to ourselves to just be. If you haven't already, just gently closing the eyes and sending your gaze right in between the eyebrows, noticing that sensation, what it feels like. Steady, deep breaths in through the nose. And maybe your next exhale is a sigh or whisper. And we're sending our gaze right in between the brows to acknowledge the third eye. That space that's deeply intuitive. That space where we know, where we understand. We have the foresight and the hindsight. And let the intention be just to develop understanding for this moment, for this day, for this life. Our story this evening is titled Sir Lancelot, the Defender of the Island Paradise. In 1619, the first slaves arrived by the sea to Jamestown, Virginia. Most were brought in chains from the beautiful shores of Ghana and South Africa to places unknown. The souls of Africa live in the sea. As many succumb to illness or an outright refusal to be in bondage. I can imagine our hero may have looked out onto the Atlantic with these thoughts in mind driving a desire to want to live his life in a way that would forever honor the ancestors that chose the ocean as their spiritual home. 
Our story begins here with a man named Israel Lafayette Jones who had a dream. He shared a dream like many others of his time who shared similar historical scars and brown skin. A dream to create a life away from the painful discrimination and prejudice of slavery. He worked as a farm laborer as his father did as a young man and eventually moved closer to the sea to work in Wilmington, North Carolina. Many slaves and free black men at the time migrated to this area to work full-time in maritime trade. Israel handled small boats and unloaded cargo from the ships that came into the port. I can imagine that his work near the Atlantic Ocean only further fueled a desire for exploration. Israel left North Carolina in 1892 for Florida searching for new opportunities. He tried to work in Tampa and Orlando, but was unsuccessful growing citrus in the region due to a freeze. Unwilling to give up on his dream for a better life, he ventured further south into the Florida wilderness where many runaway slaves and Bahamian immigrants were able to find refuge in isolation on the groves and farms of white landowners. Israel eventually found work under Walter Davies, who needed a caretaker for his property. As Walter was a stakeholder in several holdings, the opportunities for work continued to expand for Israel. In 1893, he became a foreman for a farm and sharpened the skills necessary to grow limes and pineapples. Years before Israel's arrival, South Florida's first hotel, the Peacock Inn, was built in 1882. It was nestled along the shore of Biscayne Bay in Coconut Grove. It sat atop a limestone ridge overlooking a tropical forest. The Peacock family looked to black pioneers for assistance in managing its operations, maintenance, and overall service. One of the families hired for work was the Alberry family, originally, originally from Harbor Island, Bahamas. Fast forwarding to the time for Israel, the Peacock Inn was where he met his wife, Moselle Alberry. They solidified their vows in 1895, where they had two children, both boys, who would carry on the legacy of their family for generations. Israel and Moselle named their children Sir Lancelot Garfield and King Arthur Lafayette, affectionately after the characters from the Knights of the Round Table. However, it's important to note the historical context of black people choosing to name their children using monarchical titles. Blacks who were forced into slavery were stripped of their original birth names in history. Most took the names of masters and slaveholders. Black adults were then referred to as boy and girl to further diminish any idea of dignity and respect. So in a way to protest disparagement from white people and regain a sense of power and agency, Many black parents named their children using monarchical titles to ensure that they would always be referred to as royalty. The baby boys were believed to be the first black children born on the island paradise of Key Biscayne, further solidifying their place in its history. Israel continued to create a name for himself as a caretaker, foreman, and handyman in the community for nine more years. 
he continued to cultivate his dream of going beyond expectations, eventually saving up enough money to make his first purchase of an island called Porgie Key, which was 63 acres. He was the first black landowner in the Florida Keys. One of Jones's friends mentioned that the area was only inhabited at the time by light keepers because it was a savage place with rattlesnakes. Israel was said to have killed hundreds, one of which was 10 feet long, and he sent wildcats to flee as he made the island a home for his family. The savagery of the tropical jungle wasn't the only thing in Israel's way. He was a man believed to be born into slavery, and property ownership didn't come without barriers. He was still a man having to protect his family in the Jim Crow South. Florida belonged to the Confederacy and fought in the Civil War to keep slavery intact. Lynchings were still commonplace, segregation was prominent, and blatant discrimination was the norm. All of these things made upward mobility for many black families virtually impossible or outright dangerous. For Israel Jones, he was able to fight against the systemic practices meant to keep him under the thumb of oppression, and he chose to dream big. Just a year after purchasing Porgy Key, Jones expanded his real estate endeavors and bought Old Rhodes Key, where he moved his family. Most people looked at Old Rhodes Key as inhabitable, but we've learned that Jones was a visionary. He saw opportunity where others couldn't. His work as a foreman and caretaker offered him enough experience to clear the land of his new 63-acre island into a sustainable paradise. Clearing the land was no small task. It was quite Herculean. It involved cutting through trees that could slice the skin like thorny vines, palmetto, and mahogany. He built a fishing dock next to the ocean that provided endless sustenance. Lobster, crawfish, and conch were plentiful in the mangroves. It was through his clearing of the land that he discovered a landscape of coral limestone where he knew he could grow pineapples, tomatoes, and lime. In the two years of cultivating the land as a farmer, Israel was able to sell the fruits of his labor for profit, making the Jones Farm one of the largest producers of pineapples and lime on the east coast of Florida. It's said that Jones was successful as a lime farmer because he ignored traditional farming techniques for the fruit. He grew his plants closely together, focusing more on the root systems and allowed them to bloom as they would naturally in the wild. The tight placement of the trees to compete for space allowed them to grow abundantly, which earned him his success. The profits he earned from Porgy Key lime production allowed him to purchase Totten Key from a farmer who wanted to give up his 250-acre pineapple farm after a hurricane. The white landowner deemed the island useless, but Israel is a dreamer. He immediately began his lime production on 50 acres of the decimated land. He and his sons, Sir Lancelot and King Arthur, built a small railroad on Totten Key to transport limes in the summer and tomatoes during the winter months. The farm brought the family lots of business and success, in addition to providing protection as a safe haven from racial violence and economic disenfranchisement. Despite his own successes, 
Israel didn't turn his back on his community. He was known as a philosopher and preacher, earning him the nickname Pasin, where he sometimes spoke at Mount Zion National Baptist Church. As his sons weren't able to attend the local schools, he supported and became one of the founders for a Negro industrial school. He continued to devote his time and energy to the support of black institutions as his sons grew old enough to manage the family business. Naturally, Israel allowed his sons to take ownership of the land as he and his wife began to grow older. He died at the age of 73, where hundreds came out to show their respect to the visionary, dreamer, and pioneer. Sir Lancelot and King Arthur continued on with the family business, adding 65 more acres to their island kingdom. It became the largest individual key lime grower in the state. The brothers had a 32 foot long vessel they named the Lone Star, which hauled their 250 bushels of lime to the mainland every week. Only Mother Nature was able to stop the success of their lime business as series of hurricanes halted their seven year long success. The brothers weren't deterred though, spirit like their father. They simply just shifted their focus as they were longtime stewards of the land their father had cultivated and cleared with his own hands. The brothers became guides for those seeking expeditions. Sir Lancelot fished with pivotal figures in society of the time, like Herbert Hoover and former presidents Richard Nixon and Lyndon B. Johnson. The pair would continue to be sought after for their fishing expertise by millionaires of the social club Cocolobo Bay. A partnership was established with the club where the brothers provided stone crabs, stone crabs for the elite guests. The brothers were able to live comfortably as highly demanded guides. As the area was steadily growing in popularity, it became a prime spot for vacationing in real estate. Battles for the beautiful island paradise ensued as investors were looking to develop the islands into a city called Islandia. Islandia would be comprised of 32 islands, three of which belonged to the Jones brothers. The pair were the second largest property owners in the area. And after King Arthur died, Sir Lancelot was the only remaining of the Jones dynasty. Sir Lancelot had seen his father who came into the world where slavery was the driver for profit, travel down to an unknown wilderness to create a life for himself and his children. Naturally, he was opposed to the idea of Islandia becoming a city for development of a major industrial seaport. The seaport would include an oil refinery and petrochemical plants. The plans would involve dredging a 15-mile channel through the bay for transport of tankers and ships to reach the Atlantic. Sir Lancelot was not going to see his island paradise destroyed for corporate gain. He refused to sell his property to the billionaires that proposed the idea. To protest the idea of destroying the paradise, advocates during the time suggested turning the area into a national park. The initiative was to ensure the protection of Biscayne Bay's rich aquatic wildlife, natural forestry, and historical artifacts. Sir Lancelot's friend, then President Lyndon B. Johnson, made the area a national monument in 1968. By 1980, it became a national park. As a protector and defender of the island paradise, 
Sir Lancelot ensured the forever preservation of his father's land through an exchange with the National Park Service for $1.2 million. He was the first to sell his property to the federal government and was allowed to live his remaining years in the chain of islands his family had made home. He would spend the rest of his days on Porgy Island, reading and relaxing in a sustainable way, using rainwater for washing and solar panels for electricity. He volunteered with the National Park Service, sharing his profound ecological knowledge with adults and kids as he harvested and sold sponges from his home. The sponge industry was a subject particularly close to Lancelot's heart and important to the environmental history of the region. In 1890, hundreds of fishermen, Cuban, American, and Bahamian, depended on commercial sponge fishing for their livelihoods. At this time, sponging was a $1 million a year business. Sir Lancelot Lafayette Jones died at the ripe age of 99, leaving behind his family home, which has since been added to the Register of National Historic Places. I tell the story of the Jones family because it has a story of courage, a brave, of bravery, and triumph. We have to fight for the things that we want to keep intact. We have to protect the things that we love, the things that we cherish and hold dear. And this story is so unique because oftentimes we don't associate ownership with blackness. So I am saying this to all of my listeners. This story is one where you can dream an impossible dream. You can imagine the world that Israel Jones grew up in. It wasn't one that even really saw much of a future because of someone's skin color. And yet this man was able to defy the odds to venture down into a space that he didn't know and allow himself to manifest dreams. I think that's remarkable because it tells us that we too can dream impossible dreams. And the only people that oftentimes stand in our way is ourselves. If you choose to believe, if you choose to see, if you see opportunity where others don't, keep going. Let this story be a reminder of how much you're capable of. Let this story be a reminder that you can continue dreaming. And let this story be a reminder to protect the things that you hold dear. Namaste and good night.